0: Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. To him who has ears, let let him hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. When is this inversion going to break? So that was the question I was asking when I logged on to Twitter earlier in the week, typed in Boise inversion, and lo and behold, in the search results, what do I find but Boise inversion? It it actually has a Twitter handle, (laughs) A satirical account out there it's Boise underscore inversion so you can it's quite funny if you read the posts that, that are there uh, it was Friday and we had to get out of this we were suffering so we drove up Bogus Basin somebody had told me that once you get to 4,000 feet it finally breaks well we're at 4,000 feet and it is thick as soup I mean, we could not see 10 feet in front of us I'm thinking oh no it's thickened, <laughs> uh, and it wasn't until we got just a little above 5,000 feet that, that heavens, the heavens opened up. You've, if you've done it before, it's quite a sight. If you're new to Boise, you, you must go up there and, and see this cotton ball quilt that covers all of the valley and um, oppresses us <laughs> so terribly at, at this time. There is something remarkably refreshing about a fresh vantage point. That's one of the reasons I I love the letters to the seven churches. One of the reasons why I wanted to preach this sermon series is we get to see the church through Jesus' eyes. We get a fresh look at who is what. What are churches like, <laughs> and what is what, how does he evaluate them? What does he think about these different churches? You you have the Uh, Ephesus, the doctrinally solid but loveless church. Smyrna, the vibrant in worship, yet timid in public witness church. Pergamum, highly evangelistic. They're out there telling everybody about Jesus, but slightly immature, kind of lacking in discernment. Thyatira is the big hug, everybody loves everybody kind of church, but... It's overly tolerant of, of uh, sinful practices. Sardis, the big steeple on the outside, it looks like a million bucks, and on the inside, it is, it is dead, entirely dead. Uh, Philadelphia, the persecuted, small, physically struggling church, but the one that's full of spiritual vitality. Laodicea, the rich, affluent, yet apathetic church. You go through those, the list two things are very important. One, uh, this is what Jesus thinks about you. Two, these descriptions really characterize churches like any and every church you've ever walked through, ever spent any time in. You go through that list, that pretty much describes them all. That's part of the point. It's the letter to the seven churches. It could have been the letter to the nine churches. It could have been the letter to the five churches. He picked seven churches because why? Because seven is the the number of completion, the the number of God. And so these seven churches represent all of the churches that you're going to find in in church history before or or since. Why don't we go through it together? Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. If this this was a first century church, their deeds, probably at the top of their list of deeds were the deeds of hospitality. When when any Christian showed up in your city, it's not like they had a hotel that they could go to. You were their, their hotel. You would open your doors. You would take care of them for as long as they needed to be taken care of. You would feed them, provide for them. This was a hospitable church um, they did hard work it was a hardworking church. they made sacrifices they got up early for Sunday worship. they all did because if you were a slave it's not like your your boss or your master was going to give you Sunday off of work so you had to go. many of the Christian worship services were at the break of day because that was you had to go and in worship, and then get back to work. And Jesus says, I've seen all of that. Verse 2, or verse rather, no, we're still in verse 2. Second sentence, I also know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, by those he means wicked false teachers, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. So apparently some, Traveling preachers or evangelists come along to the city, and and claim to have some authority from God, and this church tested their teaching and tested it according to the apostolic standard. Is this what John has taught us? It is not. This was a a church that was hardworking, uh, theologically thoughtful, orthodox, verse 3, it was a church that has persevered and and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. We said last week there's tremendous pressure on these little churches to just um, conform, really. Just burn a little bit of incense and say that Caesar is divine. I mean, none of us really believe that he's God, but that's that's part of the program. You just have to do it in order to curry divine or not, uh, imperial favor. Just go along with the flow. And if you don't, then we will stigmatize you and we'll boycott your businesses. You will be like... You think of a Jewish person in Berlin in the 1930s and how difficult that would be to live in that place at, at that time and place. That's what it was. And yet Jesus says, you have persevered and you have endured hardship for my name and I notice. That probably would be the first wonderful quality we, we find about Jesus Christ in this passage is he notices the sacrifices Christians make on his behalf. Um, I mean, Ephesus was a a, a sprawling metropolitan city. 250,000 people lived in the city of Ephesus, which for an ancient city, that's really large. It was the major sort of destination hub of western Turkey. It was right on the coast, so if you all of the it was a port city, all of the great wealth would travel through the port and there were three major roads that stretched out from the city and so you know, all of the commerce went through it. There was a stadium I read that seated something like twenty five thousand people so if you remember the old bronco stadium i mean that's that 's big If you have your ESV study Bible and you flip to the book of ephesians you 're going to see this picture of what the archaeologists have excavated in the city uh, since the time of, or during the time of Paul, they've got a gymnasium, they've got an athletic field, a, a theater that seats several thousand. It was even today, if you visit the ruins of the city of Ephesus, people are blown away by the the scope and, and size of that place. And Jesus notices a hundred Christians and what they do. I mean, we live in a world of seven billion people. Don't you ever, once in a while, kind of feel like that God surely has more important things to do than to pay attention to my little life? He says, I notice. I notice what you have suffered and what you've, all the sacrifices that you have made uh, for the sake of, of my name. Then verse six, so, Hardworking, theologically orthodox, a morally pure church. Verse 6 You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Uh, who were they? They were a, a cult like group that was trying to um, syncretize pagan sexual practices, basically the, the sexuality of the culture, and bring that and kind of mix that with Christianity. And Jesus says, I commend you for hating it. How do you like that? The two things that he commends the church for here, for being intolerant and for hating. <laughs> you know, that's quite the headline. It's not what you think of when you, when you think of churches. But he says you're intolerant of false teaching. You stand for something. And, and you're repulsed by basically the sexual practices of the surrounding world. One of the things I really appreciate. So I guess the second wonderful quality about Jesus Christ in this passage is, he is um, he does not criticize them for their strengths. He does not say that you are too theological or you're too moral or you're you're too too principled. He says those are good things, and I want that from a church. That a church does not need to. Be ashamed for being theologically orthodox and and putting their stake in the ground and say here's what where we stand so Jesus doesn't minimize their strengths he's a what we might say a discriminating evaluator. I love the fact that he is a discriminating judge that's not the way we oftentimes talk about other churches. you hear us talk. We'll bag on a church or a denomination as though there was nothing good in that place. But Jesus, he doesn't allow their faults to completely wash out and erase their virtues. He sees them, he sees them both. He also says that being theologically orthodox and morally pure and that those are important things. They're not the most important things. Verse 4. I hold this against you. You've lost your first love. Do you remember what that was like? Your first, your first love with Jesus, for Jesus. Probably the best part of my trip to the fiestable. I, I, I'm sorry because I, I keep using fiestable illustrations. You'll probably be hearing about it for, for several more weeks. But it was being able to go back and see. Uh, my first home, It was a red brick house built in 1977. Um, Shelton described it as a perfectly nondescript house. <laughs> it wasn't anything, it wasn't great, but all of the, these different memories came back. Um, the way I've described it is I think males, men's brains, we file things away and they just collect dust way back here until all of a sudden there's a trigger that brings back those memories and allows you to open up the file folder and, and see it again. I, I remembered probably for the first time in 20 years how I snuck out of the window, the front window of that house, in order to go meet a girlfriend on, I don't remember when it was, but one of my first loves, that's what I did. I remember my, my, some of the idiocy of, <laughs> of my childhood. For some reason I thought it was a great idea that was probably in elementary school To take a bat We had this big eucalyptus tree In the front yard And I thought, wouldn't it be great If I just do a little batting practice On the, on the eucalyptus tree So the eucalyptus tree is dead Because I, I knocked all of the bark <laughs> Off of it You've, But you have lost Your first love I don't know if that describes you and your relationship to God today. There's There are probably wonderfully manipulative, emotionally manipulative ways that I could try and get at that with you, that I suspect lots of sermons have been preached on the passage in an emotionally manipulative fashion. What I would simply ask you to do is... is right now, if it's possible, to be introspective enough to say, is the Holy Spirit speaking to me? The words that he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I really believe that the Holy Spirit can and does speak personally to, to people when I preach. He speaks a much better word than I do, and he, he, he might be saying that to you. If you hear the Spirit's saying that you have lost your first love. Your affections for God have really cooled down. If you re- remember what that's like, and I, maybe I wonder if sermons don't even function as triggers where they help us reaccess a memory. But if you hear him saying that, then this is verse 5 is the clencher. Consider how far you have fallen. That's the first part. Let it really bother your heart. Consider how far you have fallen. Invite the Holy Spirit to bring some real uh, conviction, like something that lasts past noon today, where you really, I feel I'm really torn up I'm more torn up by the fact that I've lost my love than I am about my problems with my work or school or my job. This is bothering me. Consider how far you have fallen, part two. Repent and do the things you used to do. That was what got me. What were those things that used to be present in my Christian life They once were there, and they're not here anymore. If you've fallen out of love, God's word to you is repent and do the things that you used to do. You say, well, what did I used to do? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) I'm not going to go down and give you a checklist. Here's potentially what you might have used to have done, used to pray a lot, and used to read. I'm not going to do that. The genius of Jesus' words here is he He makes the circle really large. It's broad in scope. I think so that, so He can speak to you through the Spirit. And as soon as I start giving you lists of things that that you used to do that you might not be doing, like I am immediately narrowing the circle. I don't want to do that. Um, We flew into the San Diego airport and then we drove <laughs> another feasible illustration. Ah, oh, gee. We fly into the San Diego airport and if you've ever been there, San Diego International is right on the coast, right next to a marina. We're driving down Harbor Boulevard or Harbor Drive to return the rental car and there's the marina. There's a wall, seawall, that's separating the road and because of the sea level, you can't see the hulls of these multi-million dollar sailboats. But you see the masks. And I started counting, like one, two, three, four, five, six, like 150 sailboats there. And I I don't know, but the thought went through my head. If I had enough money, and if I lived in San Diego, I could fall in love with, with sailing. Have you ever felt that about something? Like, I could spend every waking hour on my weekends sailing, learning how to sail, the Pacific, that I it would, I'd fall in love. I, I, then I wondered about the Ephesians because they lived on the coast. Did they like fall in love with sailing? I doubt that people sailed for pleasure back then. But there was so much in this city to fall in love with. You had the stadiums. You could go and watch the uh, chariot races for as long as you wanted. There is, I read that. Among the ruins of Ephesus today, there's a gladiator's cemetery. You could have gone and watched the gladiatorial games all the time. And then, the the most important, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Do you know what was there? It was the temple of the god Artemis, the goddess Artemis, Diana. Her temple, that was what Ephesus was famous for. That That was the Taj Mahal of the city. If you've ever, of course, you've seen pictures of the Parthenon before, the Greco-Roman columns and the triangular roof up above Athens. That's exactly what the temple of Artemis looked like, except the Artemis temple was four times larger, if you can imagine that. And the, the temple grounds were enormous in scope. With all of these rich gardens that were inside of it, so if you were a gardener, if you loved a garden, you could spend like every minute of every day in there enjoying it all. I just i I assume that they fell in love with something else. It's almost how it always happens. Whenever I get a couple who one of them says I want a divorce, eighty percent of the time it's. There's somebody else. There's somebody else who's part of the picture, because you fall in love with with something else. Is that you? Has that happened? Repent and do the things that you uh, you used to do. Verse seven: Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is, which is in the paradise of God, tree of life. You see it at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, and you'll discover it at the very end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, where in the new city, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, there are bukus of trees of life there, and that's what's promised to these early Christians if they will persevere and be faithful to their commitment to Jesus Christ. He promises you the tree. There is a tree of life, and it's not the tree the rest of the world speaks of. That's where I'll conclude right there. So this is, like, all of the letters have a little bit of local color to them, and we think that the local color in the Ephesus letter is this tree. Archaeologists have excavated, have found plenty of coins in, from the area and whose face do you think is on the front of uh, the front or the back of the coin? It, it's the goddess Artemis, and Ar- Artemis or Diana was the god of the wildlands. She was the, the patron saint of the deers and and the gardens, and her favorite tree was the cypress. On these co- uh, coins, there's Artemis and there's her tree. What they did is they planted this. And, and created a shrine there on the temple grounds around Artemis' tree. So significant was this tree that if a criminal were to run and come in, I don't know, a certain level of proximity to it, they would escape capture and uh, punishment. And so the tree was a place of asylum. There's an idea that you could like run to the tree and, and eat the fruit of the tree and, and you would be saved. And John says, Jesus says there is a tree, and it's not that tree. All of this somehow, you know, comes back to if you've lost, if you've lost your love. I want you to live happy lives and have happy marriages and good jobs and, and all of that. I want you to be. I do want this to be a theologically solid, hardworking, morally upright, kind kind of church but especially what has to happen is is you've got to recover your love um, without that you're, you're never going to persevere to the end I want you to be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ and there never be a doubt in anybody's mind about where you stand and whom you have committed your life to but you've got to do business with him and it means recovering your first love um, make sure that you uh, You pursue, you you make your desire, the desire to overcome every obstacle and every hindrance that would keep you from eating from the fruit of the tree of life that is found in the paradise, paradise of God. Return to your first love, amen.